Sure, on this shining night. As I understand it, it was a shining night in May 1961, the night the merger of the Unitarians and the Universalists was officially celebrated. There was, I've heard, a candlelight procession down the streets of Boston to Symphony Hall, where they brought in for the occasion, so I've heard, from Oxford, Massachusetts, the historic Universalist pulpit of Hosea Ballou, and also from the Arlington Street Church, the historic Unitarian pulpit used by William Ellery Channing. And both pulpits were placed on stage on that shining night. And John Cummins tells me that on that occasion, the Reverend Dr. Donald Harrington, a famous New York political liberal, delivered the sermon to our gathered forebears. It was a wedding celebration, in a way. It was when the two U's we see up over our chancel got hitched. (laughs) Finally, the decision was made, the decision to merge, a year and a half earlier, in October, 1959 in Syracuse, New York. So next October is not only our church's 150th, but also the 50th anniversary of the vote to merge. The decision to merge was made, need I even say it, after lengthy debate. (laughs) The leader of each denomination in the years leading up to the final vote, the leader of each was a strong champion of the merger. In the 1950s, the leader of the Universalist Church of America, UCA, was Robert Cummins, father of our minister emeritus, John Cummins. The president of the AUA, the American Unitarian Association, was Frederick May Elliott, who for some years prior was minister at Unity Church Unitarian in St. Paul and was also, by the by, by, cousin to poet T.S. Eliot. Frederick Frederick May Elliott and Robert Cummins met in 1938. Um, Both movements had been through some hard times in the Depression, and for years these two were Boston colleagues. The Universalist headquarters was at 16 Beacon Street. The Unitarian headquarters was at 25 Beacon Street. At some point, John Cummins tells me, Fred said to Robert, Look, we're right across the street from each other, isn't it about time? that Universalists and Unitarians get together, isn't it about time? Even then, in the 1950s, it was a question that had been alive for a hundred years, actually since before the Civil War. The Unitarians, who held that God is not three, but one, who said our own human nature is made to be aligned with the divine, who said that by exercising our free will, we can make manifest our oneness with God. And the universalists, who believed in the widest possible circumference of God's love, who emphasized the great, inclusive, democratic heart of God, out of which we cannot fall. The Unitarians, underlining traditionally the oneness the Universalists highlighting, traditionally, the allness. These groups, these holy heretic tribes, had been drawn to each other and annoyed by each other for over a century. <laughs> it had been a long, interesting courtship, 
and often uneasy. There were the differences we heard about from Ginny's reading by Robinson, the differences in social class, money, power, theology, culture, uh, rural versus urban in many cases, and um, educational status. Even back in the early 1800s when Ballou was in his Boston pulpit and Channing was in his, the Universalists and the Unitarians graded on each other. As our folklore has it, the Universalists accused Unitarians of being snobs, saying they won't invite us to preach in their churches. And the Unitarians countered by suggesting that Universalists were slobs who didn't bother to educate their clergy. And yet, and yet... Over the years, these groups had key points of linkage and experiences of kinship. The two capital U's had always informally overlapped. They overlapped in their liberal theology, emphasizing divine generosity and human potential. They shared a reformist spirit and found themselves over and over again working together for prison reform, for labor rights, for women's rights, for abolition. They shared a liberal approach to religious education for their children. They swapped Sunday school materials for decades before the merger. Nevertheless, right up to the hour when the merger was approved, the Unitarians and the Universalists debated. For instance, in the new name, which word would come first? (laughs) Will we be the Universalist Unitarian Association or will we be the Unitarian Universalist Association? Universalist first or Unitarian first? I don't know what finally turned that debate, but we know how it landed alphabetically as it happens. Unitarian, Universalist. Unitarians got to have the first word, but the Universalists could claim that they became the noun that the adjective Unitarian merely modifies. (laughs) What brand of Universalists are we? We're the Unitarian brand. So, it happened in 1961 when the song at the top of the pop charts was Etta James singing at last. (laughs) It was 1961, May, when the Universalists and the Unitarians tied the knot in Boston before a crowd of 2,000 and the Reverend Dr. Donald Harrington gave a homily called A New World Religion and his closing line, John Cummins tells me, was The grand experiment is underway. The grand experiment is underway. We are still underway. Still the experiment. The two capital U's remain linked, overlapping sometimes more, sometimes less. We are still reformist and forward-looking at heart and still contentious and testy in a way we almost seem to enjoy. In 1961, the Universalists and the Unitarians joined for good, and for good, so we hope and pray. It has been a grand experiment to see how and whether a religious movement so conceived can long endure. The past can't be consolidated, but it can keep giving birth to offspring who are unique and uniquely fitted to their times. They, of course, are us. We are the merger. We are Unitarians and Universalists both.
We are both. This week, when I say that word, both, for an instant, I see the image of Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor standing on the stage at the TED conference in Monterey, California, holding in her gloved hands a human brain. The, um, who knows about the TED conference, the TED Talks? It's Technology, Entertainment, and Design. It's an annual conference in Monterey. And you can hear Jill's 20-minute uh, talk by going to TED.com and typing in Jill Bolte Taylor, or you can read her book, but then you'd miss seeing her in action. Dr. Taylor, a brain scientist, a neuroanatomist, is on stage to tell us what it was like for her when on December 10, 1996, a blood vessel ruptured in the left side of her brain and she suffered a stroke. She nearly died from that stroke. She expected she might. Instead, she's standing on stage before us in Monterey. And an assistant brings out what looks like an ordinary kitchen tray, and on the tray is a tan-colored, shimmering human brain. She puts on her gloves, Jill does, and takes the brain in her hands, lifts it off the tray, and the still-attached, ropey-looking spinal cord sort of flops down and dangles while the crowd goes, ew. (laughs) The brainy crowd goes, ew. And Jill opens her hands, and the two halves of the brain separate cleanly like They've been sliced through with a sharp knife, except where they're held together by the corpus callosum, a hinge of connective tissue down in the brain's core. Dr. Taylor holds up the two brain halves for our viewing, and she tells us how the two halves have different personalities. In her right hand is the right half of the brain. In computer language, it's a parallel processor. It's all about this present moment. It thinks in pictures, learns through the body's movement, interacts with the life forces, the energies going on around us right now through all the receptors and senses of our apparatus. The right half senses our environment here and now. It lets us know that we're an interconnected energy being. The left half of the brain in Jill's left hand acts in computer terms like a serial processor. It thinks linearly, thinks in language, concerns itself with past and future, picks out details, creates lists, makes distinctions, and basically ceaselessly chatters. The left half of the brain also, and this is key, gives us the ego. It's the half that says, I am a separate being, I am this particular individual, myself, and I can tell you all about what that means because I have words and vast cargoes of memories and opinions. This, Dr. Taylor tells us, this left half of the brain is what checked out on her sporadically, then totally, that morning in 1996 when she had a stroke. After Dr. Taylor plops the brain back onto the tray and says to the assistant, it's been a joy... She tells us about her stroke, how her headache came on that morning when she woke, how her arm went dead, how her right brain took over, how lacking the definitions and outlines provided by the left brain, she lost the boundaries of her form so that the atoms and molecules of her body seemed to merge 
with the atoms and molecules of the objects around her, and it was beautiful there, she said, quiet, peaceful, free from 30-plus years of personal baggage. It was heaven. It was nirvana. She said she felt expansive like a genie released from her bottle. Her spirit was a great whale gliding through a sea of silent euphoria. Except that at intervals her brain's right, left side kicked in and shouted, You're Jill and you've got a problem. You've got to get help. <laughs> Go to the website and hear her quite funny, in retrospect, account of trying to use a phone. She couldn't make sense of the squiggles we call numbers, and she kept floating out into what she calls la-la land and what I would call a direct experience of the interdependent web of all existence. (laughs) Dr. Taylor did get help. She did recover, though it took eight years. She's once again a brain scientist and researcher, and she wants to share what she discovered, the experience and the insight that actually motivated her to get well. So who are we, she says at the close of the talk. Who are we? We are the life force power of the universe with manual dexterity and cognitive minds, and we have the power to choose moment by moment how we will live in this world. I can choose, she said. In each moment, I can choose to step into the consciousness of my right hemisphere and be at one with all that is, or I can choose to step into the consciousness of my left hemisphere, where I am Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, intellectual neuroanatomist. These, she says, are the we inside of me. Which would you choose, she asks. Which do you choose, and when? She concludes, I believe that the more time we spend choosing to run the deep peace circuitry of our right brain, the more peace we will project into the world and the more peaceful our planet will become. And I thought that was an idea worth spreading. I believe Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor's main message to us is just what she said. Peace and oneness is available to us. It's part of our wiring, our birthright, and we would do well to seek it out often. I agree, but that wasn't my main takeaway from the talk. What struck me most was her line, These are the we inside of me. These are the we inside of me. We have these two brain lobes, the left half, the right half, and in this human life we sure need them both. We need the peace and oneness half, no quarrel. But I'm also very happy for the half that screams, get to a phone, you need help. It's a strange thing, being a human, living with the both, having a we inside of me, having two such different personalities inside one skull. A lot of life's learning, it seems to me, has to do with figuring out how gracefully to deal with this, to live with this, our, our bothness. Early in my sabbatical, I learned this poem uh, by Rilke, the one I shared earlier. My eyes already touch the sun, sunny hill going far ahead of the road I have begun. So we are grasped 
by what we cannot grasp. It has inner light even from a distance and changes us, even if we do not reach it, into something else which, hardly sensing it, we already are. A gesture waves us on, answering our own wave, but what we feel is the wind in our faces. What we feel is the wind in our faces. What can that last line mean, my colleague asks. It's a lovely image traveling toward the sunlit sunlit hill and being grasped by something mysterious, but why does it end with the wind smacking us in the face? What's that? I don't know what Rilke meant, but to me it means, well, more of the same. This human condition Illuminated visions draw us forward, but we are flesh, we move against gravity. The spirit is willing, but the body has to deal with hunger pangs and bad shoes and weather. Flesh and spirit, we are both. It's the we inside of you and me. Right and left brain, we are both. Ego and interdependent web, both. Wave and particle, both. Humanist and theist, Republican and Democrat, activist and contemplative, Unitarian and Universalist, both. The wise old rabbi says, every person should wear a garment that has two pockets so we can reach into either pocket according to our need. In one pocket is a paper with the words, I am but dust and ashes. In the other are the words, for my sake, the world was created. We can puzzle about this. How am I to live wisely with all these boats? I mean, how can we make the best use of them? without denying, ignoring, belittling, or escaping one truth or the other? How can they be made to work for our good, these boats, these contraries? One of the qualities of spiritual maturity, we've been known to say, is the capacity to live with the paradox and the ambiguity. Poet William Blake says, without contraries is no progression, which is the same Isn't it as saying, without the both, there's no growth? I have a a sweet memory from my sabbatical of visiting my Illinois hometown, having long lunches with women I've known since kindergarten. Then in the evening, sitting on the sofa with my mother, who's approaching 87, and watching any old movie, just for the closeness and the popcorn. In June, it was Forrest Gump we watched with Tom Hanks, which I've seen often enough to know a lot of lines besides life is like a box of chocolates, you never know what you're going to get. I think that was the night when this sermon title, It's Both, got planted in my mind in one lobe or the other. I don't know how many times I've watched that film, but I always cry at the end when Forrest Gump finally cries when he's standing inside that circle of stones in the, at the fresh grave of his lifelong love, Jenny. You know, by then we've 
traveled with Forrest through more than three decades of American history, starting with Elvis in the 1950s and then following our presidencies, Kennedy, all the way through Reagan, and then we go into the jungles of Vietnam and with Gump and from end to end of the USA, following his impulse to just run and run for no particular reason. In the close-to-closing scene, I'm talking about Forrest is standing at Jenny's lovely grave under the outstretching branches of that huge, maybe oak, tree they played in as children. Jenny has died of AIDS and too young. She was and is always Forrest's soulmate. So Forrest stands there choking on tears, and he's brought her a little note from their son, little Forrest, which he places by Jenny's headstone. Then he stands a moment. You can see him reaching into his heart for words, for some kind of summary, looking back over it all. And he says, Jenny, I don't know if Mama was right or Lieutenant Dan. I don't know if we all have a destiny or if we're just floating around accidental-like on a breeze. But I think maybe it's both. Maybe both are happening at the same time. Then he just says, I miss you, Jenny. If there's anything you need, I won't be far away. And as he walks away, we hear the, the, the swirl and the chatter of birds rising in the tree. Is life destiny or accident, predestination or free will? Maybe it's both, he says. Maybe both are happening at the same time. I wonder why it was that Forrest Gump could entertain this possibility at that very moment. I wonder if he could entertain it because of his vantage point. I wonder if he could see it because he was standing inside a circle of that deep love. How can we live with the both in a way that leads to growth? Could, could a key be to hold the both, any both, together within a larger container, within a larger crucible, a crucible, a container, such as love? When the mystics of the world are asked for their advice on how to contemplate, how to pray, they often speak of bringing the mind into the heart. When you sit on your prayer cushion, they say, let your mind descend into the chamber of the heart. They're saying, those mystics, aren't they? Bring both lobes, those contrary beings, down into the seat of compassion. Lower them 18 inches or so and see what happens. See how they do. Bring the two contrary truths together to dwell inside a larger truth as two pockets exist in the same coat as wave and particle exist within the seamless curvature of the fourth dimension, as Republican and Democrat theoretically exist inside one covenant of civil discourse and behavior, as humanist and theist gather inside one embracing sanctuary. You know, this spiritual community This liberal church, I truly believe, is meant to be a great heart chamber, spacious enough to hold all that our minds can bring to it. And the Unitarian you and the Universalist you we see above us, when they link and overlap, they form one chalice and their flames 
form a single flame and they stand together both within the same circle of light. In honor of our tradition and our life together, and as a blessing for a symbol that blesses us, will you repeat after me familiar words for the symbolic lighting of this chalice? May this flame kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the glow of love, the fire of commitment, and the light of truth. So be it.